Um, we're glad you're with us today. We are going to continue our series um, that we started last week. And this series is called The Skeptic and the Believer. The Skeptic and the Believer. And we wanted to do this series because we recognize for maybe some of you here, and certainly for some people that you know, maybe some family members, I mean, we talked about the holiday season. You know a Thanksgiving meal somewhere. Someone in your family is going to have all their questions about Christianity. They know you're a believer, and they got all their oppositions. We know people in our world that are skeptical about the things of the Bible or the things of faith. And so we wanted to have a series where we talk about these things because I believe the church should lead the way in conversations in our culture. Anytime there's a, a hot button issue, anytime there's a divisive subject in our culture, the church should be at the forefront talking about it, welcoming questions, welcoming people who have questions, talking about what the word of God says. I believe we need to add our voice to the conversation and not shy away from it. So we wanted to take some of the big skeptical or big questions that people have in regards to Christianity. Last week we talked about the Bible. Why, why do we even read it? Why do we trust that it's accurate or valid? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. We're going to talk about Jesus, why we believe that he rose from the dead, because that's kind of a big deal. That's kind of a big hinge point for our faith, right? Either he rose from the dead or he did not, and that makes all the difference. What about science? Doesn't science prove that the Bible is inaccurate? Um, there's a question of a lot of people have an obstacle to faith because if God was loving and good, why is there so much hurt in the world? Why is there war and famine and disaster in the world? So we're going to look at all of these things. Some people say that the Bible is irrelevant. Maybe it made sense 2,000 years ago in that culture. But in today's modern world with our modern ideas of morality and what that is, that the Bible just does not apply anymore. So we're going to dive into that. Okay. Oh, it's going to be great. Um, so I have, a, I have a couple of quotes I wanted to, well, one quote I wanted to start with, because if you are a skeptic, maybe, there, maybe you've read some works from some pretty well-known atheists. And so one, um, uh, one well-known atheist is a man named Richard Dawkins, a very smart guy. He wrote a book called The God Delusion, where he kind of dissects all the stuff that Christians believe and as you can tell from the title, The God Delusion, he is not in favor of a belief in God. Another one, uh, Guy P. Harrison is his name, and he wrote a book called 50 Simple Questions for Every Christian. I don't believe they're simple questions because some of them are pretty you know, loaded questions or difficult questions, and that's why he has skepticism about the Christian faith. But one of the questions he asked was, does Christianity even make sense? Does it even make sense? And so I have a quote that was going to be on the screen that we're going to start with. And this is a quote from Guy Harrison. Um, and this is a quote from Does Christianity Make Sense? And it says this. How could they not foresee, talking about Christians, how could they not foresee that there would be doubts and mass rejection of an unproven story about God sending himself to earth so that he could be killed horribly for us before returning to heaven to be with himself? And that this human sacrifice was necessary because we are all guilty of a crime we did not commit. Adam tasted the forbidden fruit, remember, not I and not you. Furthermore, where is the proof that the important events of Jesus' life really happened 2,000 years ago? How can we trust the account of his death and what it means for us? How can we be sure that the death of Jesus was not entirely a human event with no supernatural component to it? These are the obstacles that keep many non-believers from becoming believers. 
And maybe those statements ring true to you, or maybe you know someone in your world that has similar views of that. It just seems all too unbelievable, this whole story and why it needed to happen. So last week we started this series talking about the Bible, an introduction and why it can be trusted. And last week I briefly mentioned some of the reasons why we can trust the Bible, archaeology, the original manuscripts, prophecies that came true. And I said as kind of a teaser or leaving you like a cliffhanger, we're going to talk more about that next week. So we're going to talk more about this week on the skeptic and the believer. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, and then we are going to end this uh, morning's message talking about Jesus and the moment that is means everything for us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and why we can believe that that actually Happen. So first of all, I have a few reasons why we can trust the Bible. I know this is going to be a lot of information, and some of you are like, wow, I didn't want to go to school today, but it's going to be good by the end, right? So stick with me. Um, why we can trust the Bible, and the first one is this, the original manuscripts, the original manuscripts. So how do we know that this message in the Bible has stayed the same for 2,000 years? If this was written over 2,000 and parts of it over 3,000 years ago, how do we know that as it's been translated into different languages and through different generations and multiple different versions of it, how do we know that it hasn't changed? It's like a, a game of, what is it, telephone tag, where you speak, you say something to somebody and they say it, and by the time it gets, you know, 10 people down the road, it's a completely different message? Or how do we know that the details have not been exaggerated each time somebody writes this down? Do you have anyone in your life that tends to kind of exaggerate some details of stories as they, as they go on and... Some of you are not, <laughs> some of you are very timid in your raising of the hand. I'm not looking over here to my right. <laughs> my wife, Christy, is a great storyteller because she's very energetic and engaging, and the details just get better every time she tells a story. There are stories I've heard for 25 years, and every time she says it, the numbers are more extreme and the, and the things that happen. And I'm like, man, that is a great story that was not at all accurate as to what the original manuscript said 25 years ago. No, the, the Bible has original manuscripts that show us that it has not changed over thousands of years. How do we know that the Bible message has stayed the same? Well, in one huge discovery in the 1940s was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the region around Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem, in the Dead Sea region, in these caves, miraculously, and I believe by the hand of God, there was these like clay-sealed containers that some farmers found in the 1940s that contained original or close to original manuscripts of portions of scripture dating back to like 150 BC, so a long time back. And there they were. Like That's a pretty cool discovery, right? Um, and so what that shows us is that the message has not strayed in thousands of years. Um, the message has stayed the same. The Bible has more evidence to its historical reliability than any other writing that we would consider factual. So any other historical book um, and the, the, the parameters for why we think it's reliable historically, the Bible exceeds those by far because we see we have a very large number of original manuscripts. These Dead Sea Scrolls contained passages of scripture, uh, sometimes entire chapters or parts of letters or parts of the Old Testament scripture. And so we compare it to what we have in our scripture today, and it's the same. 
Now, between the manuscripts, there are some discrepancies that people will point out, but none of any theological or historical importance. Mostly any differences would be a disagreement on how to spell one of the original Hebrew words or Greek words. And there are two instances in the New Testament where something that's written in our Bible was not in one of the original manuscripts. And it's noted in there. If you read it, you'll see a little note, and it says this was not included in the most original manuscript. And that is Mark 16 and John chapter 7 and 8, and it's noted in there. So if we look just on the basis of historical reliability that the message has not changed over thousands of years, the Bible holds true to be accurate based on the original manuscripts. The second one, and one that I find super interesting, is archaeology. Archaeology. Over the last couple hundred years, certainly over the last hundred years, our ability to dig and preserve remains and find um, remains of historical and biblical events has gotten better. So we're making all these archaeological discoveries. And as the scientists and archaeologists in the Mediterranean world continue to excavate, they continue to make discoveries that verify biblical accounts and events. There's another author that I've been reading a little bit, um, and David Limbaugh is his name, and he has a book called Jesus on Trial. And I wanted to read a quote from that book talking about all these archaeological discoveries. He says this in his book. In addition to confirming the historical existence of some 100 biblical figures and dozens of biblical cities, archaeology has substantiated more than 60 historical details in the Gospel of John and 80 in the Book of Acts. Hundreds of archaeological finds have confirmed the existence of specific people and events that were recorded in Luke's gospel and the book of Acts and were originally assumed to be incorrect. Luke's reliability as a historian is thus considered impeccable. Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, who came on the scene years and years after Jesus died and rose again, he had heard about this Jesus movement and he said, I got to go find this out. So the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts is Luke as a doctor, a, a very scientific mind, researching everything that he had heard about Jesus, talking to the eyewitnesses, making sure there's details in there. So when you read the Gospel of Luke and he talks about places and people and dates and times, that's not just to be boring details to get us you know, bored from reading the Bible. It is to verify these are actual places actual people. If you disagree, go talk to this person because he was there. It's a very methodical, and now we see based on archaeology, a very reliable account of the events and the people that were there 2,000 years ago. One example is in the Gospel of John chapter 5, 1 through 3, and I'm going to start with that and just read a couple of verses of that. Now, this is a great story of healing in the Gospel of John. Now, um, I'm going to read the first three verses. Now, the first three verses contain some of those details that when you're reading the Bible, you're like, yeah, 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 get, get through this part. Let's get to the good stuff. But here's what it says in John 5, 1 through 3. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, so one of the gates to the city of Jerusalem, a pool, which is in Aramaic, is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. And the story goes on. Now, this is a heartbreaking scene because at this, by the sheep gate, this pool, which is called Bethesda, 
It was believed at the time that when the waters were stirred, so either the winds would blow and cause a stirring on the surface of the water, or some sort of underground stream would, ha would be occurring and a, would cause a stirring on the surface of the water, all the sick people that were around had this belief that if you were the first one into the water, when the water stirred, you would be healed. So around this pool, again, heartbreaking scene because it's all the disabled and sick and, and uh, crippled people that were there. And the story goes on that Jesus met one man who had been paralyzed for his entire life. And he said, I know that I'm going to be healed if I can just get into the water. But every time the waters are stirred, I can't make it there fast enough. Somebody always beats me to it. And it's a heartbreaking story, but it's great because Jesus heals this man, and this man walks away from there and is healed. But the details of that story are so interesting because archaeologists were digging in that area in the early 1900s, and they discovered this place, Bethesda. They discovered this, uh, they discovered the city or the town of Bethesda, except they didn't find a gate, the sheep gate. They didn't find what would be a pool, and they didn't find those five covered colonnades or roof structures. And so in the early 1900s, it was kind of a big deal because they said, this is proof that the Bible is inaccurate. Because here's the story of this healing at Bethesda, but we've found the remains of this city and none of that stuff is there. But then, a couple of decades later, in the mid-1900s, they continued to dig. Archaeologists dug a little deeper, and sure enough, there it was. The sheep gate, the, the gate, and the five covered colonnade, like they would say that was this structure here, and the pool. And it verified, again, that the story, all these details that were written in the Gospel of John were accurate. In fact, no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a scriptural reference. There's not been a time where someone discovered something and says that's different than what the scripture says. So archaeology is another reason we can trust that this is reliable. And the third evidence, and maybe the most miraculous that the Bible can be trusted is prophecy. Prophecy. In the Old Testament, there were prophecies which predict with astonishing, astonishing, I said that weird, astonishing accuracy. Say that five times fast. Um, with astonishing accuracy, I say. <laughs> uh, events that would happen in the future. So a couple of examples in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 4 refers to the time, and if you know the Old Testament, you know the history of the nation of Israel. They eventually were so disobedient to God that God turned them over to be conquered by the Babylonian Empire and sent everyone into exile. And that's where we get the story of Daniel and the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all those stories that happened during exile. Well, in the book of Micah, Micah was a prophet in chapter 4, he prophesied that Judah would be invaded by Babylon and that the Israelites would be exiled. Now, we know that happened, but when Micah wrote that, not only had it not happened yet, but Babylon wasn't even a, a global power yet. So it was like saying this nation is going to rise up in power that did not even have, it wasn't even a powerful nation yet. And all of these things happened as Micah prophesied. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 26 through 28, I'm going to read that. This is talking about the same thing, the prophet Isaiah talking about this exile and how eventually the Israelites are going to be allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city wall. This is what Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah 44, the second part of verse 26. Who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited? Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Again, talking about the rebuilding of the city after this exile is over. 
Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams? Who says of Cyrus, he's naming a man here. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. So the prophet Isaiah is prophesying that one day a man named Cyrus is going to declare, Israel, you can go back and rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. When Isaiah wrote this, not only was it before any of these events happened, I mean, and Cyrus would be the leader of the Persian Empire, the new or the current global empire at the time. But when Isaiah wrote this, not only did Persia not even exist as an empire yet, Cyrus wouldn't be born for another hundred years before uh, when, when Isaiah wrote this. So again, another example of scripture writers writing things that are going to happen in the future, and sure enough, they happen in the future. This is an evidence that the Bible writers were inspired by God. There is a miraculous, supernatural element to the scripture. So hopefully this is interesting stuff and not a, not a terrible way to spend a Sunday morning. But all of this stuff, and hopefully this gives you just some things to think about and ponder if you are questioning the credibility of the, of the Bible, that it's not just blind faith, that there is substance, that you can have your mind engaged when you are a person of faith. Because that's one of the uh, misunderstandings that people have often about faith is, well, yeah, I can believe in Jesus, but you just got to turn off your brain, right? Because it doesn't make any sense. Well, what this shows us is that you can have your mind engaged and still recognize, yes, there is credibility to what we believe as people of God. But I want to talk about Jesus a little bit, because I mentioned this last week, if you were here, that all the stuff about verifying the Old Testament and the story of the Old Testament and whether or not we can trust that the, the universe was created in seven actual days or whether or not we can find the remains of Noah's Ark. And those are all interesting things, but none of those things are what my faith is built on. My faith is built on Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Is there credibility to believe that that happened? In the Old Testament, there are roughly 300 prophecies about a Messiah that would come one day. 300 prophecies that eventually would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, from being born in Bethlehem, um, being preceded by one who would announce his coming, that's talking about John the Baptist, who would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Again, specific things that happened with Jesus that were prophesied hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. Specific stuff. That he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now that one... If you're a skeptic like me, you'll say that one doesn't really count because if you're Jesus and you're wanting to convince people that you're the Messiah, you'd look in the Old Testament scriptures, which he had and he knew, and he'd be like, oh, it says here the Messiah is going to ride in on a donkey. Somebody find me a donkey. Let's get this. Let's check this one off the list, right? But there's other ones that obviously lend to the credibility of how Jesus fulfilled them. It lends to the credibility that this was a real supernatural thing that happened. The Bible in the Old Testament talks about that Jesus' hands and feet would be pierced by nails. Again, hundreds of years before this happened. Hundreds of years before Roman Empire even became a power. And certainly before crucifixion was ever seen as a form of punishment or capital punishment. These were prophesied. I found an interesting stat. Uh, it was a mathematician named Peter Stoner. That's really his name. So high school was rough for Peter Stoner. <laughs> especially if he was really into math. Um, he, he said the odds of take all these 300 prophecies 
He said the odds of just eight, just take the number eight, the odds of eight prophecies from the Old Testament being fulfilled in one person. I don't know how you quantify that, but he did because he's a mathematician. He said the odds of that are one in 10 with 17 zeros added. So that's what one with, well, 10 with 17 zeros after it. So I think officially that's a bazillion. I think that's what that number is. So that's the odds of eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person. And he visualized it this way. Imagine the state of Texas. Texas is big, right? Have you ever driven through Texas? You can drive for miles and miles and hours and hours and not see a single Bible camp. And that's how big <laughs> Texas is, okay? He said, take the whole area of Texas and cover it in quarters two feet deep. The entire state of Texas covered in quarters two feet deep. Now take one quarter and put a little X on the back of it and then throw it in the middle of the state somewhere. That's the odds of those finding that one quarter is the odds of eight prophecies, not 300, eight being fulfilled in Jesus. Again, it's miraculous. It's miraculous. And yet many people are still skeptical about Jesus because they think, well, did it really happen? Did any of this stuff really happen? Some skeptics would say, well, Jesus never existed. It's just a made-up story. That one's a tough one because historical writers verify that Jesus existed. You don't just read the Bible to hear about Jesus. Other writers, historical writers, writers from the Roman Empire, all the historical writers will mention a man named Jesus who came, who prophesied that the kingdom of God was coming, who got a following to follow him, who said that he was the way of salvation, who said that he was the son of God, and then was crucified horribly by Rome as happened to anybody who claimed to be the Messiah back then. There is verifiable writings from other historians that Jesus existed, that he claimed to be the only way to salvation and was the son of God and then was killed. All historically verified. And if that's all the story was, Jesus would be just another lunatic who claimed to be the Messiah and was trying to deceive people or was mentally ill to think that he was God when he wasn't, okay? That's how he would be perceived. Right? If, somebody, if you met somebody who claimed to be God and then turned out wasn't, you would think, that dude was crazy. Right? This is how we would view Jesus. More than that, we wouldn't have never heard of Jesus if that's all the story was. Because this was a common thing. People raising up a rebellion against the Roman Empire and then being crucified by Rome. We would never have heard of Jesus. Nobody would remember Jesus if that's all the story was. After he was crucified and laid in that tomb, there was no Christian movement. The disciples weren't huddled together saying, okay, we got to keep this thing going. We got a lot of years invested into this. Let's see if we can keep this thing going without Jesus. They were all in hiding. They were all fearful for their lives because they thought they were going to be crucified next. So there was no Christianity the day after Jesus died and was in that tomb. If that's the end of the story, that none of this would be here. There would be no movement. All the followers had deserted him. But as the story goes on, after the crucifixion, a couple of days later, a couple of women went to the tomb, and they found it empty. And then Jesus appeared to them. And then Jesus appeared to the disciples. And then Jesus appeared to over 500 other witnesses, eyewitnesses, it says through in the New Testament, that saw a risen Jesus, and then a movement was started. Because if you see a guy crucified horribly and die and laid in a tomb, and then a couple of days later, you see him walking around and talking with him, 
that's going to start a movement, right? That is going to be something that causes a shift, a change in your outlook. And that is where the movement began. Jesus is risen. Salvation through faith in him alone. And that movement continued to spread from those early disciples and that first group of 500 other eyewitnesses. It continued to spread in spite of incredible opposition from the Roman Empire and from the religious leaders in that region. Most of the first disciples were killed for their faith. Because they believed in a risen Jesus, they gave their lives for it. And yet in that moment where they were about to be killed and tortured, some of them crucified like Jesus, they didn't waver from their belief. They didn't waver and say, oh, I was just made up. We just made it up. Right? The, the, that is evidence alone that this is real, the, the, the change in those disciples. That movement continued to spread through, uh, throughout the region and around the world in the first century in spite of incredible opposition. And that movement is still spreading today. And we are a part of it. It's just, it's kind of just the growth, the ripple effects of that moment when Jesus appeared as a risen savior. Now, the rising of the dead part is the part that many skeptics are skeptical about for good reason, right? Because people who are dead usually stay dead. I mean, that's kind of the thing. You're just like, that's usually what happens. And the skeptics would say, well, it's probably one of, the, one of the explanations for the empty tomb. And the first one, what you hear sometimes from skeptics is say, well, those women, they just went to the wrong tomb. They must have gone to the wrong tomb and found an empty tomb and said, he's risen. And everyone went cheering. But if you still have the right tomb with the Roman guards guarding it, and they're watching two ladies go to the wrong tomb, all, you, all the Roman guards got to do is like, hello, wrong place. He's still in here, right? Easy to disprove that one because you open up the tomb and there's Jesus' body. So that one's easy to disprove, which they did never, they never disproved it. Um, the disciples stole the body. That's another common belief, that the disciples knew that they needed to fake a resurrection. And so they stole the body. Now, under Roman guard, the Roman, had, the Roman Empire had soldiers there guarding the tomb. They recognized that if Jesus somehow disappears, this is going to create a riot. And so they had some pretty well-trained, armed Roman soldiers guarding the room. So if you believe then that this band of disciples somehow defeated the Roman guard and rolled that sealed stone away and stole the, the, the body and then claimed that he is risen, that would be what a lot of people say. That's clearly what happened. Okay? Well, that theory in my mind doesn't really hold a lot of water, in my opinion. First of all, because they would have needed to make up a better story. When you read the gospel accounts, if you're a disciple and you're writing a story that's all made up, you're going to make yourself sound great, right? You're going to make yourself like, I never stopped believing, and I knew Jesus was going to do it, and now we conquered the world. None of that was written in there, right? They would have written themselves in as better characters, but they didn't. When you read the, when you read the New Testament, it, the disciples are always the ones that are slow to grasp what Jesus is saying. They were the ones hiding after Jesus died. They were not towering people of faith. Another one, in that culture, um, the, the, the value placed on women was really low. In fact, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in any court. That's just the way this culture was. So if you were making up a story about a risen Savior, you would never have the key witnesses be two women who came to the tomb. You wouldn't do it because nobody would believe it. It's just not a verifiable story in that culture. 
And also, you wouldn't say that there are 500 eyewitnesses who saw a risen Jesus because that's a lot of people to get in on a story, right? Have you ever tried to get a group of people to keep a secret? I mean, it's hard enough for people to keep the secret about the phony moon landing about 70 years ago, right? Someone would, it's just a joke. Um, imagine trying to get all those people. And it's not like these people were made up names. They're verifiable people that someone could say, did you see Jesus rise again? Yes, I did. Did you see Jesus rise again? And then when persecution comes and they say, you better deny that you saw Jesus rise again or you are going to be tortured and killed. And yet they still hold on to that belief that Jesus is risen and the son of God. That speaks volumes. That speaks volumes to be that there is not a made up story here. There is something that caused change in these disciples from cowering in fear to standing up in the midst of persecution proclaiming, I've seen Jesus is alive. What would cause that? Well, I believe it's because they saw Jesus alive. And if you see that, that makes every difference, right? If you experience a risen Savior Everything else is going to pale in comparison, right? Everything else is going to be like, I don't care what you do to me. I saw the guy die, and I saw him walking around talking to me, and he says he's the son of God. So I'm with him. That's the approach. That's the appropriate response to a risen Savior. So that's the final thing that I, why it adds validity, this account of Jesus' resurrection, is the change we see in the disciples, and not just the original disciples. Look at James, the brother of Jesus. So Jesus had a brother named James. And in the Gospel of John, verse uh, chapter 7, it says that Jesus was performing miracles and he was doing all these things. We can throw that scripture up there. John 7, verse 5, and it says that for even his own brothers did not believe him. So, which makes a little sense, right? If you, anyone have a little brother? And if the... Evie, if your little brother came to you and said, I'm the son of God, and you need to bow down and worship me, you'd be like, yeah, no, right? <laughs> There's something about a brother that you're like, nah, I don't think so, little brother. I've seen you growing up. You ain't the son of God. So it's almost like his family members, and kind of rightfully so, were the last ones to believe in Jesus. But then look at Acts 1.14. This is after the death and resurrection and appearing of Jesus. When they were waiting in the upper room and praying, Jesus had ascended to heaven, and it's this. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So something happened between John 7.5 and Acts 1.14 that caused James to shift his thinking and believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And James writes in his epistle in the New Testament, James, it's how, he, how the book of James starts. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something happened in James to get him from, I don't believe my little brother's the son of God, to now I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe the only thing that would cause that shift is if you see your brother die and then you see him rise again. That is what makes sense to me. It's the only explanation to me that these cowardly, unbelieving men saw a risen Jesus and that changed everything and it changed the world. I believe that the resurrection happened. I believe Jesus is alive. And it's the only plausible explanation, not just blind faith and not just like trying to hype anybody up. It's the only plausible explanation to why this movement made it out of the first century. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. Otherwise, we would have never heard of it. So how do we respond to this? Here's a big question to wrap up our morning this morning. What do we do with Jesus? 
What are you going to do with Jesus? All of these things. You might still be a skeptic, and that's okay. And I would love it if you would at least open the door of your heart to faith in Jesus Christ, that it might just be real. What have you got to lose? But yet, what have you got to gain if you just open up your heart to faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, the one who died for you, the, the one who wants you to follow him into new abundant life? What have you got to lose? But what are we going to do with Jesus? E either he's the risen Savior or he never rose from the dead. Those are the options, right? And if you believe, how do you respond to that? Imagine being in the room when Jesus first appeared. Imagine experiencing a risen Savior. How would that change your life? How would that change your outlook on how you're going to spend your days and what's going to be important to you and how you're going to uh, go about the rest of your life making the most of these opportunities to share about this risen Savior? If you were in the room and you saw a risen Jesus, what would that do? When you come into an environment when you can sing and praise God, like would you, in seeing a risen Jesus, would it be just half-hearted and like, oh, there's Jesus. I guess that's cool, right? Can you imagine being a disciple in that moment and Jesus appears and everyone's just like, oh my goodness, you were dead and now you're here. Can you imagine anyone being like, hey, that's, hey, that's kind of cool. All right. Well, I'm out. I'm going back to work. Good luck with the movement, guys. Um, hopefully I can, I feel kind of inspired. I feel good. Um, I'm going to go on with my life and, and we'll, I'll check in with you guys in a few months, right? N of course not. You've seen a risen Savior. So either he's the risen Savior or he's not. Either you believe in it or you're skeptical about it. And if you're skeptical about it, that's, I'm glad you're here. You're welcome here. I don't mind skeptics. It's not, it's not the skeptics that I don't understand. Because a lot of this is like, yeah, that's just hard to kind of, supernatural stuff is hard to get my mind around. And it's not that I don't understand the skeptics. Here's the people that I have a harder time understanding. It's the believers who believe Jesus rose and yet it doesn't really register as all that important in your life. I believe Jesus rose and I'm going to go to church and yes, smile, and it's going to be great. But other than that, it just doesn't have an impact in your life. We're talking about a risen Savior. This is life changing. Those first disciples from hiding in fear to full surrender and abandon and worship and to give their life for this King, this Savior. That's really, that's really the only response to a risen king, a risen savior is, I'm with you. Whatever you want, Lord, I'm with you. Life as usual is no longer for me because I want to follow the one who gave his life for me and rose from the dead. That is the response. I was at um, Teen Challenge on Friday. I was teaching a class there and Every time I go there, I'm overwhelmed by their staff and leaders there who are giving their lives to help bring people out of addiction and to have their lives turned around by Jesus Christ. And this is what they're giving their lives to. And what causes them to do that? It's a risen Savior that drives people to do that, right? It's a risen Savior that causes people to give their life for that cause. I was at a banquet last night for an organization called Together for Good. And this is an organization that helps families in their neediest moments by supporting them with resources, with temporary childcare, prayer, and support. And there's a networks of churches and believers all around the, the metro area 
who are on a list when there's a family in dire need, they call this family and we're like, we got you. We can watch your kids. We can provide with resources. This is the organization that I heard about last night. And there's volunteers and churches all over the state volunteering, helping with this effort. Why do people do that? Well, they're compelled by a risen savior. This doesn't happen if it's just, oh, maybe I'll, I'll believe some of these things. No, this is life change. And it's not like grand, I'm going to quit everything and move to Africa and be a missionary. Maybe it is. It's simply just my life now cannot be the same as it was before because I've encountered a risen Savior. After our services today, I'm meeting with our missions board, our team of people that are going to help champion the cause of missions in our church. We support a number of missionaries around the world financially. We want to support them with prayer and send teams over there. And, and we have these people that are serving around the world. They've left their, the comforts of America to go serve in northern Asia, in China, in Africa, in the Arab world, in northern Africa, in Cambodia, and orphanages and schools that they're educating children who have no other hope of education, who are feeding the, the poor and the hungry. And they're giving their life for this. And of course we want to support them in any way we can. Why are they doing that? Because there's a risen Savior who compels them to give their lives. Here at the church, we have youth ministry and kids ministry, and we had family laser tag on Friday night. We have all sorts of fun stuff. Our youth ministry and kids ministry is awesome. We highlighted the pastors at the church, the Maxwells and the Stevens, what they're doing in kids and youth is remarkable. But we're not doing it because we just want to entertain your kids for an hour during the week, right? Laser tag's fun, but if it's just laser tag, it's, it's still fun, but it's just laser tag, right? We're not just doing this so that you have a chance to sit in a church service for an hour while your kids have fun downstairs. We're doing this because a risen Savior compels us to do anything we can to raise up the next generation of believers so that they go into all the world and change the world. This is why we're here. It's because of a risen Savior. Our culture is taking it out on our young people these days. And as followers of Jesus, a risen Jesus, we're going to stand in the gap and we're going to say we want to do everything we can to raise up these volunteers. And we need people to help. We need people to help. So we have an army of people, a small army of people at Homestead. And I want this not to be compelled out of like guilt or out of like coercion. Oh, I went to church today. That was a mistake. The pastor made me sign up for something. I want you to be compelled by a risen savior that says, follow me. Let's change the world. So that's how I want to end today. I want to challenge you with that. I'm, I get discouraged in my life at how often my response and my attitude just falls short of what's appropriate for a risen king of kings. There's times where I, I focus on the wrong things and I, I find myself, you know, just wasting time on things that don't really matter. And I'm just like, man, how would I respond if I was in the room when Jesus appeared? Everything would be different. I want to make the most of it. It can be discouraging for me when I see that in my life. And it can also be discouraging at times, and here's where we're going to treat this like a therapy session for a minute. It can be discouraging in a church environment where it's like, man, a lot of effort and time and resources is, is put into just trying to get people to be interested enough to engage in something and show up to church once in a while and, and maybe serve as an usher greeter. And that can be draining. If it's just about my motivation skills, we're done for, right? But if it's about responding to a risen Savior that says, hey, where you're at, do something to advance the kingdom of God. Don't just live your life 
unchanged after you've experienced a risen Savior. Let's go. We have a world to reach. So I want to find those who are with me, and let's get going. Let's meet the needs of the kids and the next generation. Let's reach out to our community. Let's support missionaries around the world. If you want to go around the world to be a missionary, we're going to get behind you and fund you and send you. Let's go. Let's make a difference. If we have 300 people in this church, that's 300 little lights that are going out making a difference. And it will work if we all do it. But it's not going to do it. We're not going to do it if we're compelled by motivational speeches and you know, cool Sunday morning services. It's when we realize there's a risen Savior. And it's not just a fairy tale. It is something that we can put our trust in. Amen? All right, so here's what I want to do. If you're, if you're with me in this, put up your hand. I want to see who's in. Who's in? Who's in? And this is not like weird, like, well, now I have to because I don't want to be the one that came here. No, I'm not in. All right. This is just a sign, not just to me. We're not going to hand out sign-up sheets now. This is between you and God saying, I want to do better at responding to the risen Lord in my life. I don't want to just coast through life, okay? So let's close in prayer, and then we will wrap this up. Lord, thanks for your call on our lives. Thanks for the presence of the Holy Spirit that we sense in this place and in our lives. And Lord, I praise you as the risen king. This is not just a story. This was not a story that ended with a, with a, a wise man who died and that was the end of the story. This is the son of God laying down his life for us so that our relationship with God could be right. And now you call us to follow you, to lay down our lives and to pick up new abundant life in Jesus Christ. So we want to do that. And I pray that you would help us make a difference wherever we're at, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. We are not there just to observe, not there to shy away. We are there to reach out, to invite people, to meet needs, to bring meals, to pray for people, to see your power bring healing to hurting families. So, Lord, help us know how to do that. Give us your wisdom and guidance. I pray that you would build your church based on and anchored in Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. So thank you, Lord, for what you're doing.